One of those things that um, sometimes you wish you hadn't sat and watched the news, lots of, uh, lots of uh, natural disasters, just, you know, death, destruction, all those kinds of things that sort of we see and hear almost daily in the news. And it just seems to contrast uh, to this season of the year, this season of Advent, when we really folk try to focus on uh, the Christ who came for the, you know, today we're going to be talking about how the angels came and sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace uh, to people. And, um, but you know, uh, I would invite you this morning to just take a break from all of that and uh, settle into this holy place today and to meet the God of peace who meets us here. Uh, our God promises to comfort every person who is in distress uh, to, uh, to be with those who are wounded and those who are feeling vulnerable, those who are in need of forgiveness or reassurance today. So I invite you to come into this place. And uh, the scripture says that if we come with a humble spirit, God will lift us up and all the mountains in our life, God will uh, make low. Now, what does that mean? That means that God offers us stability uh, in all the upheaval of life. He brings salvation to those who are suffering. He calls us to be bearers of good news in this world. And so I think that's our challenge as, as believers in, in this season of Advent, to be, be people of peace and people who bear good news to the world around us. Let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Lord, as we come to celebrate again the coming of your Son into the world, draw near to us, we pray, and bring wholeness to those who are clinging today to their brokenness. Speak to us a word that we need to hear for our healing today and send your spirit to dwell within us and empower us as we seek to serve you in all the places where you will place us in the week ahead. And God, we give you praise and worship today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a country music fan, you know the name Travis Tritt, who has made a name for himself playing everything from Southern rock to bluegrass, to standard country music as a performer. In an interview, Travis revealed a little-known secret about his early years where he played out-of-the-way joints that sometimes got dangerous. Once, when a bar brawl broke out, Tritt tried something that uh, worked so well it became his standard response anytime a fight started. Tritt said, just when things started getting out of hand, when bikers were reaching for their pool cues, and rednecks were heading uh, for their gun racks, I'd start playing the Christmas carol, Silent Night. It could be in the middle of July, I didn't care, Tritt said as he played, grown men would stop everything and calm down. Sometimes they'd even start crying, standing there watching me sweat while I played Christmas carols. Now that might have worked for Travis Tritt, but I've got to tell you that the very first Christmas carol recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, had exactly the opposite effect. E. Stanley Jones, the famous missionary and Methodist preacher and scholar, called the, this particular Christmas carol the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, instructed missionaries to poverty-stricken India to never repeat the words of this Christmas song in public because it would incite riots in the streets. One modern writer said that when you read the lyrics of this carol, you sniff the powder of dynamite. I'm talking about the song titled Magnificat, 
So named in Latin thousands of years ago because the first word of the song is magnify. It is the original work of an unmarried teenage peasant girl who has just found out that she's pregnant. A girl we know as Mary. Now most young unwed girls don't just burst into song when they hear news like that. But there was something different about Mary. First, we noticed that Mary had learned to trust God from an early age. The profile of Mary that we pick up between the lines of Luke's writing tells the, tells the whole story. Mary had been raised in a poor but godly home where life was hard, but she knew that God was good. When she heard she had, uh, was uh, to be the mother of the Messiah, she didn't know how it would turn out for her, either in her present or in her future. She simply heard the angel say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of the Lord, a word of God will never fail. Now, verse 37 in some translations says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary answers with total readiness, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. She had learned through the hard times that God was faithful and trusted him even though she didn't fully understand. Now, second, Mary's personal choices had prepared her for the surprise of a lifetime. Verses 27 and 34 describe Mary as a virgin. She had decided early on to maintain moral purity. Now, don't get the idea that this was an easy thing in her day. First century Palestine was no leave-it-to-beaver kind of world. And yet, even during her engagement to Joseph, she didn't rationalize away her moral values as was commonplace both then as it is today, and she remained a virgin. So why is that so important? In the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, writes a word to the wise on this topic. He says, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Now here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Purity places us in a position to be blessed by God. Mary had kept herself in obedience to God and pure for her husband to be, so when the news of her pregnancy came, she knew that God was up to something very special. And then third, Mary knew the true identity of the son that she would bear. Eavesdrop for a moment on the, uh, what the angel said to her about her son. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary heard those titles. Jesus, meaning Jehovah is Savior. Jehovah is salvation. Son of the Most High. Messiah. 
Before anyone else on earth knew who he was or why he came, Mary knew and she understood the purpose of her pregnancy and all the scandal in the world would not change that. A teenage girl was the first to share the good news and she told it in song. Now we're almost ready to hear her solo, but first we go to the home of Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth, to whom Mary is related. As soon as the angel departed, Mary made a beeline to Elizabeth's house, and, uh, which was several days' journey away. And as soon as Mary enters the house, Elizabeth hears her voice, and the Holy Spirit confirms the truth in her mind, and she shouts out, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? First the angel's words, then Elizabeth's affirmation, it was all that Mary could contain. God was about to change the course of human history. The most important three decades in all of history are about to begin. So Mary starts to sing. The lyrics are recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, beginning in verse 46. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he has made this promise to our ancestors, to, to Abraham and to his children forever. I invite you to step inside these ancient lines and hear the heart of this mother as she announces that a new day has dawned both for her and for us. And there are really two distinct themes in Mary's song. The first theme is all about undeserved grace. It's about God's gift, delivered in person. Pay careful attention to the simple words of this teenage girl. Notice her self-description as she praises God. She calls him God, my Savior, in the opening line of her song. And why is that important? Because only sinners need a Savior. And Mary sees herself not as some kind of rare person born without a sin nature, but she sees herself as a sinner like all the rest of us in needing rescue. And then she sings of God, looking on the humble condition of his servant. Literally, she sees her lowly stature both in the world's eyes and in God's eyes. And her words tell us that Mary felt totally unworthy to be chosen by God. Just another poor girl among thousands of poor girls who lived in the backwater towns of a captive nation. Mary was struck by how different God's choice is from how people like us tend to choose. And I've discovered that there's always a single question that arises in the heart of a person that, who understands how much grace it took for God to choose them. And here's the question, why me? 
Why me, Lord? I know my own sin. I know I'm fallible. How fickle my heart is and how perfect you are. So how is it that you would choose the likes of me? And that's the question that Mary felt very deeply. You see, humility is one of the marks of someone who has stood in the presence of God long enough to realize that they don't deserve God's love. And even though they're recipients of God's mercy, they don't deserve it. And that leads me to one more observation about Mary. Mary sees God's actions toward her as evidence of his great mercy. In verse 50, she sings that his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. And that's Mary's poetic way of saying, God, you didn't give me what I deserve. Instead, you showed me your mercy, withholding what I have coming, just as you do for all who fear you. In the first part of her song, we see something wonderful and true about God. And that is that God loves the underdog. God loves those who are the world disqualifies, the unimpressive. And Mary stands before the Lord just as we do, and she's needy and she's flawed with nothing to merit God's favor, nothing that should earn uh, anything but judgment. And she is amazed at a God who knows her so well and yet chooses her. There is a gift in that that you won't find under any tree in this season. And it's the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come for us. In the second theme uh, of this song, Mary turns her attention to a world system and interprets the meaning of Christ coming for this earth. So the second theme is all about God's rescuing power or how God's strength changes everything. In verses 51 through 55, Mary sings of a radical reversal of this world's values. Shifting everything we try to establish so that it magnifies God's justice for his people. She mentions three groups of people that will be impacted. First, he will rescue the helpless. Verse 51 says, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. Now Mary is just this young girl. She's not a political analyst. And she's standing in the living room of an older relative in the hill country of Judea, and she is singing this song, but she saw it coming. She saw her boy child will be the one who will turn upside down all the centers of power that people have established on this earth. This baby is God's signal to power brokers at every strata of society that the end of human strutting and self-centered ambition is at hand. And I love the opening line of verse 51. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. Have you ever had someone challenge you to arm wrestle? You know what that is. You know, how about if it's your child? You know, you're arm wrestling, what happens? They don't have the same strength that you do. So they're trying to pull your arm over with two hands and half of their body weight, and they strain for a while, and then in a moment of the parents choosing, the stronger opponent can just roll them over. I think of that when I think about how many egotistical sports figures and self-consumed celebrities and prideful business leaders have in their own conceited way tried to arm wrestle with God and in the process walk over 
people day in and day out. And I think of this verse, God's mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. What's the application of this great song of Mary for us? Well, I think there's uh, three particular points of application. The first one is that we need to elevate our focus. If, we're, if you're caught up today in this world's values, if you think you're fresh out of options, or if you feel like you've been dealt this really bad hand in life, then I have a message for you. Bring your case to God. Bring your case to God. Stop fawning over the people that our culture holds up as rich and powerful. Stop trying to make wealth your goal in life. Don't despair over which party wins the most seats in Congress. Don't lose sleep over how unfair your boss is treating you. And don't stew over how wronged you've been all your life by others. I invite you to let the song of Mary comfort you. God is just letting the powerful strengthen their position and exhibit their influence for a little while on this earth. But one day he will say, enough is enough. And one day, as the Old Testament prophet Amos declared, God's mighty flood of justice and endless river of righteous living will wash over all things that are wrong in this life, and God will set everything right. So instead of whining on Facebook, try bringing your case to God, because he is the helper of the helpless. And verse 52 also reminds us that God will exalt those who are humble. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. Do you remember from the pages of the Old Testament a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar? He was the most powerful man on earth at the time, and he knew it. And Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament details the sudden and stunning deposing of this mighty man. And when God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar was lifted, the former king immediately declares this truth. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. How many times has the Lord humbled those whom the world thought to be powerful or influential. They begin to think they're invincible, and then God has a way of reminding them that they're not. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that those who are humble, those who are considered weak in this world, will end up inheriting the earth. Now, secondly, we need to reverse our ambitions. Mary's song tells us that if we want to succeed in God's world, we need to stop buying into the hype that this world dishes out. That says that if you're going to get anywhere in life, you have to be assertive, you have to stand up for your rights, you have to blow your own horn, you have to pat your own back. There's a higher law at work than the law of the jungle. And Jesus gives it to us in Luke 14, 11. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. We are to seek humility, not glory. We are to labor for the Lord, not for ourselves. We're to stop caring about who gets the credit. We're to give without expecting anything in return. We're to take the back seat. That's the path to greatness in God's kingdom. 
In Isaiah 66, 2, God said, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. And then third, we need to learn to trust God to bless us. We learn from Mary's song that God will fill the hungry. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. You see, God is looking for people who are hungry for him. And he passes right over those who are self-sufficient. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 6? Bless, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're, they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. He, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he uses them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, the church of Jesus Christ is for people who feel their emptiness. It's made up of people like those who gathered around David uh, at one point in his life. In the Old Testament story we read in 1 Samuel 22, uh, uh, this time when David was on the run from King Saul, and he needed to somehow gather some people around him who could help him. And the Bible says others just began coming to him. People uh, who were in trouble, people who were in debt, people who were discontented until David was captain to about 400 men in that army. That's the kind of folks that God is looking for. God loves people who the world forgets, the forgotten, who feel passed over in life. He, God aligns himself with those who know that they're not perfect, the nobodies, people the world considers losers. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. He chooses the lowly over the proud. He finds the hungry and fills them. God is on the side of those who cannot take care of themselves. And that's what Mary is singing about. While the proud are brought down and, the, and, and, and left empty-handed, the humble are filled and exalted. See, it's not about us. It's about the greatness of our God. And this is the benefit God has poured out on the world through the coming of the Messiah. This is the wonderful promise for people in Mary's day. The common people of that day felt helpless it, when it came to justice and civil rights. They were often hungry and downtrodden and discouraged, and there was no way they could fight the system. And Mary, this young teenage girl, filled with the Holy Spirit, was perceptive enough to see the Lord turning everything upside down. The weak dethroning the mighty, the humble scattering the proud, the nobodies being exalted, the hungry being filled, and the rich ending up poor. Now, I don't know about you, but that truth is very comforting to me. I love it. When we are wronged, know that God is the one who will set it right. When we are downtrodden, it is God who lifts us up. When we are slighted, it is God who blesses us. When we're insulted, God promises to exalt us. Of course, the condition for him doing those things for us is that we must first be humble and obedient servants. See, Mary begins her song by magnifying God. I know a lot of people who have trouble magnifying God because they're too busy magnifying themselves. I know people who have trouble praising God because they're busy trying to sit 
in God's seat. But what a wonderful message of hope in Mary's song. Elevate your focus, reverse your ambitions, and trust God to bless your life. God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Amen.